so I'm thinking this is gonna be a longer episode. Alright, let's just roll with, it? let's just roll with it. We might need a I might need a break to grab wine halfway through, but That's fine. Yeah, I'm gonna have to pee. Welcome back to another episode of the Missed Information Podcast. I'm Ryan Havey, here with co-host John Tilden, as we strive to provide you with an unbiased look at some of the more controversial issues of the day. Friendly reminder, uh, give us a follow on Instagram, missed underscore information 2020. Usually we dive into the news happening around the time we record, but today we're going to be diving straight into the deep end because this episode is going to be a little bit longer than, than what we've had in the past. We have a feeling, but at this point, uh, we're recording on the 21st of October, 2020. You probably already know who you're voting for, but you might be on the fence about Biden, Trump not voting or voting third party. And today we're going to take a look at these two candidates' platforms, figuring out where they really stand on the issues that matter, not what Facebook tells you they stand for. Yeah, not what their political ads say, not what Facebook says, just what does it say on their platforms? And we, like many Americans... We're pretty disappointed with the lack of actual political content in the first presidential debate. <laughs> and it's a euphemistic way of saying it. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow, fun fact, I learned that they're going to be using the mute button, which I feel like all of us have used the mute button at some point on our coworkers in the middle of Zoom slash Microsoft Teams slash Skype calls over the course of the past nine months. And I can only imagine the joy that one would get out of muting your opposing side. So we're going to try to present this in a modern debate style, where we ask a question and then use the candidate's official platform to put together an answer for each of them. So for this scenario, John will represent President Trump, I will represent Vice President Biden, and after each section, we'll debrief about our thoughts and then continue to the next session. So a quick note here, there's a pretty noticeable difference in how each candidate presents their platform. The Trump campaign kind of forwent an official platform release and released a pretty brief second term agenda, which is kind of the large bullet points and large goals for that second term. Whereas Biden's campaign is a lot more lengthy and a lot more into the weeds or I suppose you could say the nuance of each issue. So because of that, there's going to be a lot more information from the Biden side, uh, just because of the material presented by each campaign. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. There is something to be said for being brief. But again, we encourage you to go look at both websites because there is a lot that we did not include here. And I'll be sure to link everything in the uh, show notes of the episode for you. So with that, John, are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. Perfect. Let's do it. First topic of the night, COVID-19 response. The U.S. has 4% of the world population, but 20% of confirmed cases of COVID-19. How does each candidate plan on containing and eradicating the COVID-19 pandemic? The Trump position on this would be to develop, test, and release and distribute a vaccine by the end of 2020, which would then lead into some sort of return to normalcy in 2021, which there's not a lot of detail given on that, but I can assume that means social distancing, relaxed, probably not pushing for a national mask mandate and putting pressure on states to release the curfews and limits they've put on gatherings. Uh, Going off of that, all critical medicine and supplies for healthcare workers in the U.S. that would help in a pandemic response should be made in the U.S., 
which will then lead into refilling stockpiles and preparing for future pandemics. Then on the other hand, Biden leans more on implementing widespread testing and tracing through a pandemic testing board. I'm not sure exactly what that pandemic testing board entails. Mark that as a little bit of an asterisk there of, of an uncertainty, but also double, double the number of drive-through testing sites to make it easier for people to get tested, build a national contact tracing workforce, which would uh, include 100,000 American jobs, utilize the defense production action to acquire, produce, and distribute PPE. Uh, I believe President Trump invoked this. You may have recognized it when he you know, asked, uh, I think it was GM, to build uh, ventilators. And Biden also wants to focus on American-made PPE products to eliminate risks in the global supply chain. And this is where two candidates align on it, but also calls out premium pay for healthcare workers and required emergency paid leave. Biden also wants to take a more globalist perspective and restore the relationship with the World Health Organization, the WHO, to coordinate with the global responses and build a nationwide vaccination campaign to ensure the fair distribution of vaccines while ramping up large-scale manufacturing of as many vaccine candidates as necessary. So whether that's Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, I think is working on one. In summary, both candidates are focusing on American-made medicines and supplies, but Biden's focus on testing and tracing differs from Trump's focus on a vaccine as the primary way that COVID-19 will be eradicated. Both discuss preparing for future pandemics, which is good because given the rise of globalism, it's really unlikely to be a one-time occurrence. So the second topic is education. So the question is, without our K-12 school system, the future of our country will not be able to succeed. How does each candidate plan on taking care of the American future? So I'll start this one off. Biden's side of it in his platform, support educators by giving them the pay and dignity they deserve, invest in resources for our schools so students grow into physically and emotionally healthy adults, and educators can focus on teaching, ensure that no child's future is determined by their zip code, parents' income, race, or disability, provide every middle and high school student a path to a successful career, and start investing in our children at birth. On the Trump side of things, we've got provide school choice to every child in America and teach American exceptionalism, which is a great tie-in into our first episode, if you haven't gone back and given that a listen to. Which, part of me is surprised that that's what made the list for education for Trump in America, but if you think about like his core demographic and what they're interested in, that makes a lot of sense, that that would be important to him. There really is a lot of nationalism in the Trump appeal, so it it shouldn't surprise me that teaching American exceptionalism is high on the list. And again, like Biden goes into much greater detail on his website, and the fact that his wife is still a teacher, and I think she's got her PhD in yeah, she's a doctor. Related, yeah, something related to teaching makes me think that he'll bring kind of a really unique perspective to this subject. And, you know, if she's first lady, I'd be interested to see kind of how she handles education. But I'm not entirely sure about school choice. I don't know if, if you have an opinion on it, John, but I feel like in some ways it offers students a way out of poorer neighborhoods. But if they don't have the resources to travel and like make it to the school that they're choosing to go to, it seems like kind of a moot point. Yeah. So I feel like this is something that could easily be its own episode later on. And that might be something for us to return back to. I think you're right that it's a good option for kids who want to get out of a bad school district. But then I think it kind of 
begs the question, why don't we just fix those districts, right? Like if there's a bad inner city school, why are we going to bus kids out to the suburbs to go to a, a private school? We should be trying to fix that school, right? Like it doesn't really do much there. I mean, we could probably go to the next level and the next level and the next level of like, okay, well, why is the school bad? Well, it's because it's due to property taxes and like, how do we increase property taxes to fund the schools? And well, then the people can't pay the property taxes to live there and they then can't go to the schools that have gotten the increased funding. And it's this whole kind of circular issue. So one of the main criticisms I've heard about school choice is that it just makes it cheaper for middle class and upper middle class kids to go to a private school, oftentimes a religious school, while actively making things worse for the public school option. And there's also issues about, you know, private schools don't have to accept anyone. So there's a lot of criticism that this policy ends up helping middle class families who have the money to send a kid to a better school, which actively hurts the local school. Right. But let's say you're like middle class and you can afford to send your kid out to a, a suburb school, like that's like a little bit better of a public school option, like 20 minutes away and you can drive there. Like, that's great. Like you should take advantage of that option. But it definitely seems like it's not a fix-all solution. Yeah, I think one of the things with education in this country, and we talked a little bit about this with American exceptionalism, is that it really matters which zip code you're in. Like when I grew up outside of Chicago, like there was the one zip code next to us where like the Blackhawks players retired. Like my little brother ended up, when he was learning to drive, he ended up inadvertently ending up on the lawn of the Blackhawks the Black head coach for like five seconds. <laughs> and then like, you know, you go 10 miles the other way, there's communities that like, yeah, they're not like the hood, but they're the, the level of opportunity there is night and day difference. And that's not necessarily true in other countries. And I think school of choice would probably compound that issue. That being said, it is a probably is a good option for middle class families who are in bad districts. But then it kind of, I guess, begs into the question of religious instruction and things like what do religious schools have to teach and what they don't have to teach and what that means for things like evolution, LGBTQ issues, history. I mean, that that could easily be its own topic. And I'd love to dive into that a little deeper at some point. There's tons with education. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface here. We by no means have any of the answers. Neither of us work in schools. <laughs> we ask good questions, but as, we, as we're pretty upfront about, we are not experts in any of this. We're usually just like two drinks in and just giving you the really high level educated view. If you want any more detail about that, we can point you in the right direction. But to people who aren't drinking wine throughout most of these podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we got a lot to get through. Next topic is police reform and racism. So the question is, racial unrest has spread throughout the United States and has only been amplified by the murders of Americans like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. How does each candidate plan on addressing police funding and how law enforcement handles suspects and criminals alike? I can kick this off for Donald Trump. The Republican Party has been very, very pro-police and pro-law enforcement this year especially, but historically that's always been fairly true. 
Trump's calling for to fully fund and hire more police and law enforcement officers. There's no defund the police here. He does call out that he's already accomplished some of that by allocating another $98 million in grant funding and allowed for 802 additional full-time LEOs. He'd like to increase criminal penalties for assaults on law enforcement officers. He'd like to prosecute drive-by shootings as acts of domestic terrorism. He'd like to bring violent extremist groups like Antifa to justice, which, and again, I think Ryan, that's a direct quote, right? Like, there's no definition to what to justice means. I copied from his platform and wrote verbatim into our show notes for all of Trump's because it was so brief and to the point that I figured let's just read it verbatim for his stuff. Biden's is a little bit summarized. Gotcha. Okay. This one's one that, is this right? He wants to end cashless bail? That is correct. He doesn't want to end cash bail. He wants to end cashless bail. Google machine time. Yeah, I'm looking that up too. Cashless bail is a criticism that basically comes down to only middle and upper class people can afford to leave jail if they're incarcerated before uh, a trial. And I'm, I don't know if I'm using incarcerated correctly there. I don't know if that actually refers to being convicted, but people who are being held until they're, they go to trial and... The criticism is that that actually makes somebody much more likely to become a hardened criminal because you can't hold down a job or support a family if you can't afford to leave jail. Essentially, the criticism of a cash bail is it's just a revenue generator for for the county and Mm. poor people pay most of the costs for that, whereas middle class and upper middle class criminals, and a lot of times they're they're not given a cash bail. So is is Trump saying here... He wants to end cashless bail. Yeah, cashless bail is typically a system where it's something like, again, not a lawyer, not super familiar with the justice system, but it would typically be something like, hey, if you meet these conditions, you don't have to pay any money. We're going to hit your bail. Like, there's a couple of options. Ah, like if you've never been to prison before. Yeah, or like there's an option, I think, where if you have somebody who can really vouch for you or you're able to put some sort of property up without doing a cashless bail. So I was going to say, if if we were talking about ending cash bail, I, I definitely think that's a system that is way tougher on poor people. And if you can't afford to pay $1,000 in bail, you're probably going to lose your job and you know have your life ruined, even if you're guilty or not. But ending cashless bail, that seems like a good option. I guess I understand the point about keeping dangerous criminals in jail until trial. If you've raped or committed murder or you're a domestic terrorist, yeah, I don't want you to get bail. But if you're accused of petty larceny, bail is a reasonable option given the circumstances of your case. So it seems like maybe like cashless bail was the equal and opposite overreaction to cash bail that it's been presented by, looks like New York has used it and it maybe goes too far, but there isn't necessarily like a middle ground system. So instead of going way to the other side, Trump says, hey, let's just keep it the way that it is and maintain the status quo. A criticism I'm seeing, too, is that regardless of if you're guilty or not, if you do pose a potential safety risk, you can walk out if you do pay your bail, whereas somebody arrested for shoplifting who can't pay their bail could sit for a long period of time. So I've got my opinions about this, but I think we can move past that one. So Trump wants to end cashless bail and keep dangerous criminals locked up until trial. Since 2016, the Trump administration has expanded Project Safe Neighborhoods 
to encourage U.S. attorneys, I'm sorry, to work with communities to develop customized crime reduction strategies. I'll give him credit for that one. That seems like a good program. And the Department of Justice under Trump announced the creation of a new national public safety partnership, a cooperative initiative with cities to reduce violent crimes. A little bit more emphasis on law and order. I mean, Trump has literally called himself the law and order president before, but there there is some good stuff there too. I think that a national public safety partnership might not be a bad idea. I'd have to look at the specifics of that, but I'm in favor of that off the top of my head. It sounds nice. Biden's perspective is focus a little bit more on addressing the issues that lead to crime and finding ways to reduce repeat offenders. And so a lot of what he calls out on his platform, which again is much more detailed on his website than what we'll go through here, kind of focuses around that. So a couple of main points. He states that we can and must reduce the number of people incarcerated in this country while also reducing crime. No one should be incarcerated for drug use alone. Instead, these cases should be diverted to drug courts and treatments. And this includes decriminalizing the use of cannabis. Then our criminal justice system cannot be just unless we root out the racial, gender, and income-based disparities in the system. He goes on to state our criminal justice system must be focused on redemption and rehabilitation by making sure formerly incarcerated individuals have the opportunity to be productive members of society. I think that part is really interesting. There's a not-for-profit organization based out of Holland, Michigan called 70 Times 7, and they kind of take that bullet point and implement it into the the town and so they get ex-felons coming in and and they give them mentorship nice clothes to go for job interviews they help get them set up they're funded through the church and basically they they implement this model throughout different communities in michigan focusing on making sure that felons that come out of prison can be reintegrated back into society and don't end up going back to prison and their recidivism rate, it's crazy. I think the, I'm going to fudge the numbers, so I'm not going to even like give percentages, but they they far outperform the national average on everything. So shameless plug for 70 times 7 in Holland, Michigan. Great organization. Biden also goes on to say, no one should be profiteering off of our criminal justice system. So I feel like this is one, John, where the two candidates really show some pretty stark differences. I mean, they're they're pretty far apart on a lot of issues, but this one in particular is a fairly divisive one. So looking at Trump's platform, there are two things that stand out here to me. And the first, and maybe I guess both of them kind of meld to one point. And that's that I get, I got so close to liking this in some ways. So what I mean by that is my first thought was we need to bring violent extremist groups to justice. But my first thought was something like white nationalists or stopping lone wolf terrorist attacks like the El Paso shooting or the Charleston shooting or the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. But that's not what Trump's talking about. He's talking about Antifa. And I don't think Ryan and I are big Antifa guys. No, no, not quite. I'm not super thrilled about the fact that Antifa is the only thing he listed there. If it's violent extremism, we want to investigate domestic terrorism in every shape and size, then yes, by all means, let's do that. But I am going to be honest, I don't necessarily trust Trump to prosecute that. And the other idea is I'd love to end cash bail. And I thought that's what he wrote here at first and then kind of looked over that and was a little surprised. But I mean, a, a lot of this is what you'd expect, right? Like Black Lives Matter has kind of been one of the main issues of this year and of the last several years. And they went out, both of them 
on completely different sides, which is to be expected. So this one's a lot starker of a difference than some of uh, the other ones. A couple of things to point out that, that weren't necessarily on the platforms, but I think should be brought up. During the vice presidential debate, Mike Pence stated that he does not believe that there is systemic racism in America and that implicit bias uh, does not play a factor in our justice system. And so in case you were listening to that debate and thinking like, I'm not racist and you know, other people I know aren't racist, you can not be racist, but still have like systems based on some racist policies. And implicit bias is something that everybody has inherently. It's the bias that like kept our ancestors alive. So, I mean, John, you might know like a bit more of you know, some of the historic implications of implicit bias, but, but the definition that I found is that it's a bias that results from the tendency to process information based on unconscious associations and feelings, even when these are contrary to one's conscious or declared beliefs. So basically it's, it's that gut reaction you have. Like, I have an implicit bias against Donald Trump. Anything he says, I instantly associate that I probably won't agree with him because I just think that he's not a great human being. I think like systemic racism also needs to be its own episode because there's just so much you can talk about around that and what that actually means and left, right, center, who's wrong, who's right, what's true, what's overstated, what isn't true. But but the idea that there are implicit biases that humans have is 100% true. Like our friend who's Italian and looks Middle Eastern has admitted he's been stopped a couple of times at airport security randomly when flying internationally. That's not necessarily a political opinion to think that there are situations where people get treated differently, right? Like if you go and look at studies about the incarceration rates and the sentence lengths of white women convicted for violent crime versus black men convicted for violent crime. I mean, it's night and day difference. And a lot of that goes back to like our ideas about a woman in this situation versus a guy in this situation. So anyway, I'd like to dive more into systemic racism at some point, but implicit biases are real. We can link some research there if needed. Yeah, I, I took a note that uh, systemic racism is definitely one to come back to. It's just like, like, how do you summarize America's history in like five minutes and run through all the implications about that topic, right? Like, that's a pretty daunting task. And it's heavy, too. American history can get pretty dark, and this is definitely one of the darker chapters. For sure. So, in the interest of time, let's keep moving. Next subject is climate change. Now... It's been said that climate change is the existential crisis of our generation. I'll go first. Trump has already withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement in 2016. There's been a continued trend of deregulation and calling for energy independence from Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Canada, which would typically lead to increased drilling, which we'll come back to in the energy section, and continue to lead the world in access to the cleanest drinking water and cleanest air, and then also partnering with other nations to clean up our planet's oceans. Did you see any more information there about what cleaning up the oceans entailed? I'll give you two guesses on what the answer is. Is it China? I'm just going to leave it to it's China's fault. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like I like that one better. Yeah, that is not verbatim, folks, from from Trump's Trump's plan. Yeah, no other details. I mean, it's it's great to see that like he's pushing for the cleanest drinking water, cleanest air, and to partner with other nations to clean up our planet's ocean, take like a globalist perspective. Like, sweet, good for Trump, sort of. Biden's plan. His goal is to lead the U.S. to net zero emissions by 2050, which some researchers say is too slow, but I mean, it's it's something. He outlined the green energy revolution, which is kind of his response to the Green New Deal. He believes the Green New Deal provides a framework for meeting the climate change that we face, but he doesn't officially endorse it, and he hasn't accepted that as part of his platform. Also, the Green New Deal, it's a 14-page PDF. It's at least interesting. If, if you haven't read it, uh, would definitely be worth the read just to educate yourself on what that actually is, because there's a lot of lot of talk around it. Biden has stated that on his first day, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. He would also position the U.S. as a climate leader for the rest of the world, and also would like to ensure safe, clean drinking water is a right in all communities. So, in summary, you know, Trump has repeatedly stated that science is uncertain on climate change and has downplayed humanity's impact on the world around us. Uh, and if you know me at all, you understand that this is one of the larger issues that that I focus on when I look at different candidates. Biden has been the opposite. Now, he started off like in the Democratic primaries, kind of having the, the worst climate agenda. But as he became the nominee, he really kind of revamped his plans. And Kamala Harris has been really, really pushing climate agendas from the Senate. But because of this, Biden has a much more comprehensive climate strategy. And I'm sure that we'll be doing an episode in the future focused on kind of why people deny climate science and what's led to the resurgence of those ideals. Because it didn't used to be this way. It used to be that the Republican Party was kind of synonymous with environmentalism. It's definitely a conservative value to use our resources wisely. Yeah. I mean, the the break here is pretty much you'd expect. If you think climate change is real and a threat, you're going to break towards Biden on this. And if you think climate change is real and overblown uh, or not real at all, you're going to break more for the Trump policies. So this is you know about what you'd expect. Not a lot of surprises there. Now, to kind of continue in this vein, we lean more towards the energy side of things and how each each candidate plans on supplying energy to American citizens and their businesses. Uh, do you want to give Trump's perspective on energy first? Sure. So kind of per that idea of expanding American oil independence through increased offshore oil and gas drilling, Trump wants to have the largest oil and gas lease in the Gulf of Mexico of about 78 million acres and just generally expand offshore oil and gas drilling. Increased exports uh, of energy resources include allowing financing for coal and fossil energy projects. He approved the Keystone Pipeline and the Dakota Access Pipelines, so I can imagine uh, future pipelines would definitely be on the table. He also rescinded Obama's Clean Power Plan and a couple of other Obama-era environmental regulations and introduced the Affordable Clean Energy Rule in their stead. So generally speaking, um, expanded fossil fuel production for greater energy independence and less regulation around energy. And on the Biden side of things, his plan is to invest $1.7 trillion, 
over the course of the next 10 years to leverage private sector, state, and local investments to total over $5 trillion to fund sustainable infrastructure projects. Uh, in doing so, this would create new jobs, I would venture to say probably some new industries, and overall fix a lot of, a lot of infrastructure. So a lot of birds with that $1.7 trillion stone or mountain, you might say. Biden's plan also includes no new fracking, oil, or gas leases. And so some people say, like, Biden will shut down all fracking. He has not said that. That's a, a fairly far-left approach to shut down all fracking, but he has said no new fracking, kind of taking a, a middle-of-the-road stance there. And then he also plans to utilize clean energy to produce good-paying jobs in his modern infrastructure revolution, kind of like what I hinted to in that first point. Um, he's planning on making investments in pre-apprenticeship programs to ensure proper training for these new jobs. And in doing so, this would, would definitely increase the amount of, uh, amount of trade jobs that exist, therefore kind of increasing the middle class as well. So again, Biden focuses on using renewable energies to create more middle class jobs and build sustainable infrastructure, whereas that's partnered against Trump, focusing instead on expanding oil and gas drilling, both on public lands and offshore. So, I mean, my perspective is I like that we don't have to protect global oil interests in either of these plans, because I think that it's just kind of a, a waste of money. And engaging in, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, which an all audio platform doesn't necessarily make itself best prone to, but our democracy saving regime change wars in the Middle East have been kind of a, a money suck just because we've been trying to protect oil. But my opinion is that we can kill a few birds with one stone by investing in renewable energy. Um, we can become energy independent while also not using those fossil fuels to pollute our planet and release more emissions. Yeah, this is like climate change in the sense that this break is pretty clear cut and you can tell a lot by a person on which side they're going to support there. Um, not a lot of surprises. All right. Foreign affairs then. How does each candidate view America's view on a global level? and specifically in regards to military action and relationships with countries we have shaky relationships with, like China. I can get that started. So Biden has a couple of kind of key things that he breaks out that are kind of foreign policy specific. One is more domestic than it is foreign, but it's kind of one of those gray areas. Uh, and that's with Puerto Rico. So what he's looking for there is some increased infrastructure development, looking to forgive disaster relief loans, to help expedite their recovery, as well as restructuring their debt, and a full audit of debt around the PROMESA Act. Do you know something about that, John? Yeah, so Puerto Rico's finances have been pretty shaky for a bit. So my understanding of this is that the PROMESA Act was basically this austerity that was imposed on Puerto Rico, that there needed to be a balanced budget, and there needs to be some sort of financial oversight, and then debt restructuring as well to deal with the Puerto Rican government debt crisis. That's really taken it on the chin with COVID and Hurricane Maria and just everything that's happened there. So basically, Biden's calling for scaling back some of that austerity, which has really impacted a lot of Puerto Ricans with the goal of reducing the government's debt. I'd be curious to hear the uh, Puerto Rican leadership perspective on that. And 
like what the people of Puerto Rico think. Puerto Rico could also be its own episode. I mean, the history of the U.S. and Puerto Rico, like should Puerto Rico be a state? That's. I feel like this has been a good episode for laying out future content <laughs> topics because this is kind of like a microcosm into what politicians and parties are discussing. Yeah, if there's anything I've learned from this episode, it's that you've got to think about a lot of stuff to be president. Remember that when you vote, kids. Holy cow. Holy cow. There's a lot going on. All right, so for Central America specific, the emphasis there is on improving investment in the area to reduce migration. Basically, hey, instead of having this mass exodus of Central Americans leaving their countries and either coming to the U.S. as refugees or traveling across the Mexican border as illegal immigrants, like, hey, let's uh, see what's going on there in order to reduce migration. Now, I I really hope improving investment doesn't mean, hey, we're going to invest in democracy building efforts similar to democracy building efforts in like Vietnam or Korea or some of the wars that we've been in that haven't been historically viewed as successes. When I read that bullet point, I had a couple of thoughts. And the first one was, it'd be great to help improve the situation in Central America. But we also talked a lot about the idea of banana republics in our socialism episode. That's a shameless plug for you guys to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. And about what US intervention in Latin America has done in the past. So yeah, I'm kind of torn about, you know, bettering the region versus playing big brother and having this white man's burden relationship with Guatemala and Honduras. Definitely a, a gray, a gray subject that, Hey, added to the list. Let's dive into it. All right. With China, China is definitely Trump's favorite country to, to go against, but Biden's got some, some strong criticism of them as well, mostly on the detainment of, I'm going to butcher how to pronounce this, but it, it's pronounced Uyghurs. Uyghurs. Okay. I mean, that's as close as I can get. That's the rural community that's kind of in Western China? Yeah, it's a primarily Muslim, Central Asian ethnic group in far West interior China. Okay. Basically, they don't necessarily abide by, you know, Beijing's laws and and practices. And Beijing is saying, hey, we're going to make sure that you follow those. And detaining the Uyghurs, not necessarily treating them super humanely. Is that accurate? This could also be its own episode. Yeah, so China's a big country. They're very different from the U.S. in a lot of regards, but we're comparable in size and we're pretty diverse. And a lot of that comes down to this, that diversity within modern day China has caused some issues. And then there have been some Islamic terrorist attacks within China um, committed by Uyghurs, which have definitely led to a lot of conflict with Beijing. I'm not an expert on their history, but there's been a lot of detainment and maybe even re-education mm. in Western China, which is a pretty insidious way of putting it. Another point on China that Biden makes is that he's very against the authoritarianism that I think the whole world has seen in Hong Kong from the main Chinese government against the protesters there. And Biden does agree that China is violating trade agreements. However, feels that the tariffs that Trump has imposed are erratic and that they should be scaled back a bit. Biden reiterates that we have the strongest military in the world. And as president, Biden will ensure it stays that way. 
The Biden administration will make the investments necessary to equip our troops for the challenges of the next century, not the last one. But the use of force should be our last resort, not our first. Used only to defend our vital interests when the objective is clear and achievable and with the informed consent of the American people. So that's done through the approval of Congress. Yeah, there's a lot here. Well, thankfully, there's not anything more than a couple of key points for Trump. So the big one is holding China accountable for COVID. That was not really spelled out. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that probably means more tariffs and more trade agreements that exclude China. Bringing the troops home, and we have seen a scale back in the Middle East from Trump already, so that tracks. And then wiping out terrorists that threaten the U.S., which, in my opinion, kind of contradicts point two. But those are the the three points for Trump. The three-point foreign policy plan. Not to be confused with the triple threat. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is one of the first elections I can remember where foreign policy didn't dominate. I feel like the Bush election and then Obama-McCain, it was all foreign policy. Like McCain's support of the surge in Iraq was a huge deal. Bush and Kerry, the issue about if we finish the war in Iraq, what that means and how the war on terror is going. And I feel like this has been really quiet on the foreign policy front. I think there's been a lot of issues domestically that have definitely <laughs> have definitely taken a, a front seat. It's hard to talk about foreign policy when your house is on fire and everyone's sick. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the perspective I see as well. The foreign policy perspective, like side of being president is huge. And in the past, it's been a, a driving factor in how people vote. Like, okay, which of these people do we think is going to be better at foreign policy? But with this, like you said, it, it's barely come up. I think there's some big differences here, but this doesn't seem as night and day as some of the other ones. This is one where they're definitely closer than energy, climate change, or law enforcement. Biden seems to have a very traditional perspective on how foreign policy should be handled. I could see this kind of thing written coming out of the Obama administration, the Bush administration. I don't know as much about the Clintons, but like I could see this happening at any point in the last 20 years, and I wouldn't be surprised. Like I could see Romney writing this back in when he was running, McCain, same thing. It's, it's a fairly nonpartisan approach. And more of just a very pro-American standpoint of like, hey, we think we're doing it all right here. And here's some issues that we see around the world. And this is how we're going to act as as global leaders, for better or worse. I think this is one, an area as well where the Democrats haven't changed a lot, right? Like ideas like climate change and policing. Like we've seen some pretty big shifts in 10 years from the Democrats. And I think this is a area where I think you're right that this is something I could see coming out of like the early Obama White House, which like Biden was involved in. So like that makes a lot of sense. Uh, That's also a good segue into the Supreme Court, which is an area where I would say there has been a lot of maybe not progress, but definitely some shifts in the Democratic line of thought. So if you want to kick us off there, Ryan. Yeah, not a problem. So Biden hasn't really announced any official description for plans for the court. I mean, obviously he would nominate more liberal judges, people who have like a more living interpretation of the Constitution rather than textual interpretation or constitutionalist interpretation. Amy Coney Barrett, she is currently moving through the approval process. And Harris, the vice presidential nominee, is a key player in this as well as 
she's on the the Senate committee to basically make sure that Barrett is fit to be a Supreme Court justice, which is really fun to watch from like a political perspective. Like if you were watching American politics from like an unbiased perspective and like, oh, holy cow, like this is wild. Season 2020 is getting crazy. But moving on, Biden really like he's going to elect judges that support limitations to gun ownership, including as he's written out in his platform, assault weapons bans and requiring background checks for all gun sales. And then where Trump called out abortion in his kind of Supreme Court breakdown, uh, it should also be noted that Biden is for a woman's right to choose on the issue and supports the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling, which states that to be true and will most likely nominate judges that believe the same. I'm just going to go out and say we've been talking a lot tonight about what we want to do next. Let's not talk about abortion. Yeah, I think it could be summed up with that ruling was in 1973, and it's been a topic of conversations for the past almost 40 years now. Yeah, that's that's one of those hot button issues that like there hasn't really been a lot of change in that front for years, like other than like some state level decisions. Can I put my tinfoil hat on for a second? Why not? All right, tinfoil hat is on. Conspiracy time. So I think it's because it's a manipulative way for the Republicans to consistently get the evangelical vote. And if they were to all of a sudden change their minds, that very large group of voters may stray from their party lines. I think that's also fair. And I think that the other side of that is I can't see anything that would get liberal people out in force like coming after Roe v. Wade. Maybe coming after LGBTQ rights or like really expanding police forces and use of force. Like those are the three things I think that'd be the easiest way to get every person who leaned left or center to come out and vote against Republicans. And and I think on the other hand, I think coming after the Second Amendment or making some sort of like really large like socialist push would probably be the easiest way to get the Republican base out and voting against Democrats. Oh yeah. And using it more as like an against rather than a for. Yeah. I, I think that like Republicans want to curtail the right to an abortion and Democrats want to curtail the Second Amendment, but I don't think either of them really have like the stomach to make huge changes there. I don't think they want to. That checks out. All right. Speculation off. Tinfoil hats off. All right. Going into the Supreme Court, Trump is naturally all about getting Barrett uh, nominated. He's really behind that pick. He's definitely going to continue nominating constitutionalist Supreme Court and lower court judges as yeah. is. And in a second term, I can imagine we'd probably see a couple more justices retire. He would definitely protect unborn life through every means available and definitely defend religious freedoms and the Second Amendment freedoms. Again, not a lot of color or specific examples there, but I think with him, the the specifics of that are kind of second to like the ideology, right? Like I really don't see a situation where there was a Second Amendment issue and Trump wouldn't defend it pretty pretty strongly. So nothing really surprising here. It seems like it's pretty cut and dry, Republican versus Democrat, traditional beliefs. You know, Roe v. Wade and gun rights, as we talked about, still hot button topics. They're drawing some of the strongest beliefs from each side and the people who oppose those beliefs from each side and getting a lot of people out to vote. I really wouldn't expect this to change anytime soon. Maybe Barrett could be her own episode on like what we think of like what the precedent is of trying to, to rush a Supreme Court approval process 
through like right before an election. But other than that, I don't know. I think we're having this issue of like, there's so many things we could talk about, particularly at this point in history, but they're all happening so fast. The Kenosha shooter was how long ago? Two, two months yeah. ago. And that seems like years ago. I think that this 24 hour news cycle is kind of eclipsing stories. Like yeah. something dominates for three days and then it's gone in a week. It makes it really hard to uh, run a part-time podcast as like <laughs> people who who don't necessarily dedicate a ton of time to it. I was going to say one thing I do want to make sure we touch on is this idea on court packing because it's come up a few times and you know the Supreme Court has nine justices and people on the far left are calling for Biden to quote-unquote pack the courts which is basically adding two additional justices to the court to pull that back into the democrats favor should he win the presidential election and man like i've got opinions on that and i really hope he doesn't you know we've talked a lot about the degradation of democracy when people don't trust the system kind of during the mail-in voting episode and if the president starts tampering with the number of supreme court justices I feel like that's just another area that would generate a lot of mistrust. Like nine justices is enough and we shouldn't add two for short-term political gain of one party because it sets the precedent for future presidents to do the same. And I feel like it could just be this back and forth of like, add two, add two, add two. And all of a sudden you got 176 Supreme court justices. And it's like, you have to build a new Congress hall in order to house them all. Like that seems ridiculous. I've seen things where people have suggested implementing some sort of reform, like 20-year term limits, getting a constitutional amendment for something like that, as opposed to adding new just new judges or making the number of justices proportional to something. So I've heard those ideas like that tossed around as ways of reforming the court without adding new justices. Yeah, I think we should talk about congressional term limits before we talk about Supreme Court term limits, but that's just me. Which I think that's a, I think Trump likes that too. Court limits? Yes, I think we did yeah. see congressional term limits as something Trump supports. Boom. See, you can find something you can agree with with anybody. All right. Should we talk everybody's favorite topic? Oh boy, taxes. Here we go. What is each candidate's tax plan? So Trump's coming out strong with tax cuts for companies that make in America and generally keeping tax cuts going, keeping the 2017 tax law in place and possibly further tax cuts as needed. Short and sweet. All right. Lower taxes and incentives to make things in America. Biden's has a bit more detail and makes me wish that I would have paid more attention in my accounting and finance classes, but basically a 15% tax on booked income. That's, that's just for corporations. I think that's specific to companies that are offshoring so that there aren't opportunities to get tax deductions or loopholes. So booked revenue, booked income, uh, considers all income recorded in the financial records. This includes both earned and unearned revenue. When the company makes a sale to a customer, it records or books the earned revenue into the financial records. Uh, that comes from smallbusiness.com. Gotcha. So booking, ooh, taxing earned and unearned revenue. Interesting. It seems like there's double dipping there. Corporate tax rate would also go up to 28% as well. Something that I'm 
torn about is those making more than a million would pay the same tax rate in their investments as income. So you pay 30% income tax, uh, everything you invest is taxed at that rate. Let's say you make $100 in investments. It doesn't fit with the million dollar thing, but it's just easy number to work with. You tax $30, but let's say then, how do you freeze that off in a moment of time? Like, oh, I made this much in this year by December 31st, but then you know, I'm paying my taxes in April, but in February I lost like half because the stock market crashed. Kind of a worst case scenario, but then you're paying the 30% on what you earned that year. Ah, there's a lot of complications with, with it. Generally, the idea is you don't tax investments at the rate you would with income because the rate of return is such that it can be cut out pretty easily. So I get that. I'm sympathetic to the idea. I would just want it to be like up to a certain point rather than like middle income families or upper middle class families uh, getting taxed yeah. on retirement income. Taxing it on withdrawal or something, like putting up some sort of system like that. Yeah. Or like, you know, somebody who's like just taking a million dollars and investing it in a hedge fund, like shouldn't be taxed the same rate as somebody who's putting $10,000 in a year for a, a 401k. A lot of nuance with this with this topic. Biden also goes and says he wants to raise a corporate tax, tax rate to 28%, increase the child tax credit. He would also like to repeal the 2017 tax law, which I think has a lot of the Trump tax adjustments, which I feel like that was one where for most Americans, taxes went down, which that'd be disappointing to see if you want to have more money in your pocket, which I feel like everybody does. And then also increase taxes on investments and passive incomes. Now, it is called out that Biden states that people in lower brackets, less than 400K per year, that their taxes would not increase and that only people who make $400,000 a year or above, that their taxes would increase. But definitely one of those where there's, there's more questions than answers, at least from our end. The corporate tax rate, it's expected to be 21% at the end of this year. I'm curious about the Made in America tax credits and like what the, the policy around that is. Uh, there's not a lot of detail. I think the idea is pretty great. Everyone likes tax cuts, and I think Trump can definitely campaign on that tax bill to a certain point. The rebuttal has typically been that it really ballooned the deficit just because, you know, when you're cutting taxes on everyone, the rich are going to be the ones paying most of the taxes, right? Like if I get if I get the same tax rate as a multimillionaire, the multimillionaire is getting a lot more money back. As a percentage of the income, maybe not. But as a dollar amount that the government could have taken in, yeah. So that's a criticism that's been levied against Trump. So I'd be curious how you would campaign on that. I, again, like this is one where it's pretty par for the course. Uh, higher taxes on the wealthy from Biden, further tax cuts from Trump. I mean, that's not news, really. Should talk about jobs? Let's talk about jobs. What does Trump think about jobs? Tax cuts for companies that bring manufacturing back is a key point for Trump. Expensing of essential industries that move their jobs back to China. So the, ta the way that taxes would be done for pharmaceuticals and robotics, there'd be a lot of things they could write off when they do taxes if they are bringing jobs back from China, which I'd get behind that. Create 10 million new jobs in 10 months and then create 1 million 
new small businesses. Not a lot of specifics about those last two points, but I do like point one and point two for Trump. Man, creating one million new small businesses. I think something that like has always kind of bugged me about the economy and job growth is it's easy to say I'm going to bring jobs back, but I feel like politicians aren't really good about the concrete steps they're going to take to make that happen. Now, that being said, Biden does outline some points here. So looking to institute like a civilian climate corps, which I'm not sure what he's looking at there. I can speak to the history on that a little bit. So the CCC in the New Deal was this program, uh, which stood for the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was given these jobs centered around public works. So dams, ditch digging, utilities works, transportation systems, wildlife refuges, maintaining roads, reseeding, working far as preventing soil erosion, animal shelters. So it was this way during the depression to get some public good and you know employ young unemployed guys in this process. It was a very FDR esque. Yeah. And there's some controversy over like how effective FDR was with the New Deal, but I do like the idea of this civilian climate corps where people would do things like go out and work to clear brush in California and Colorado that would prevent forest fires or go out and plant trees to help uh, the country reduce its uh, carbon footprint. It's a good idea. And it's it's very, I think, on brand for the Democrats as like kind of taking this past idea of the New Deal and then kind of connecting it to the future with the Green New Deal. It kind of works in two ways. It's very similar to Hollywood, where we're just kind of recycling things from the past that worked really well or sort of worked well and are remembered fondly, and trying to make it into something new and great for today's day and age. Yeah, and like, and that's another key point for Biden as far as promoting that investment in green technology and then making it easier for union membership to happen in those industries. Uh, that's a, another key selling point for Biden with using the Green New Deal to jumpstart the economy. He also goes in and, and talks about hiring to fill vacancies in the VA, as well as the second great railroad revolution. So in case you're unaware, rail is specifically high-speed rail. Uh, It's very prevalent in Europe. Um, Also, Australia has a pretty decent rail system, specifically in New South Wales. And so kind of incorporating that into American travel as as a means of public transit to lower American emissions. Um, And he's also looking to expand internet access which I think would be a, a huge win in the post-COVID-19 world because so many jobs have gone remote and by expanding internet access, you, you give more people the opportunity to have access to those remote jobs. Yeah, I, I really like this idea about expanding internet access, especially right after COVID. I think that the ability to work from anywhere is huge. If you can get a job for a company in New York or Philadelphia or Dallas and you live in West Texas, I mean, that's a really easy way to boost your income. And it's also good for the employer because they aren't paying New York or Dallas prices. It definitely opens you up to a, a lot of new opportunities. And so I also think like it's really cool to see this economic growth in Biden's plan tied to environmental sustainability goals while also bettering American infrastructure. 
kind of taking a very holistic approach in that in that sense. I think it also like kind of cushions the blow a little bit. I feel like the rebuttal to a lot of Biden's stuff is that it's going to destroy the economy. And I think it's good marketing on their part to kind of see that objection and weave it into, no, this is going to be a net positive for the economy. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I, I think it's a convincing argument at this stage. Oh, yeah. We haven't even talked about how how much some of these things cost. Man, that'd be a really interesting study to go through and see like all of the things that both candidates want to do and how much that would cost. And what that would look like from a, a national debt perspective. I can only imagine the dollar figures that get associated with some of this stuff. Honestly, I don't even know if they necessarily do either. Like they have a better idea than we do, but I think some of these things haven't been laid out particularly well either. Oh, definitely not. No, on on either side. All, All right. right, final topic. Home stretch. Healthcare. I'm gonna come out and say this. I think this is probably Trump's weakest point. He had a fairly good point for foreign policy, or one that I don't think is going to be very controversial. I disagree with aspects of his law enforcement policy, but I think that it will be popular with a lot of elements of the country. I don't think healthcare is a strong point for him because he only has three points at this point. And they're repealing Obamacare, lowering prescription drug costs, and making sure that there's full coverage in the country. He does want to end surprise billing, which is actually something he shares with Biden, that we need to make the healthcare system more accessible to consumers so that they know what they're paying to prevent things like you go see a, go to a, a hospital you think is in network, but then you see a specialist who's out of network, so then your cost is $2,000 more than you thought it would be. Uh, that is something they share. But generally speaking, this was, I think, this isn't you know, the bread and butter of Trump, uh, law and order and jobs. And the, the strong foreign policy are definitely the things he likes to tote himself on. And it, I mean, it doesn't help that Obamacare has been called Obamacare so much. And Trump has made it like his life goal to repeal anything that Obama touched. I don't know how wise that is, right? Because like a lot of people really did like Obama. So I don't know. And especially in the last couple of years, I feel like the polling around Obama has probably gone up. So I don't know if associating a, a policy with Obama is as much of a, an insult or a sticking point that Trump thinks it is. Now, on the other hand, Biden, he defends Obamacare because he was part of that presidency. And I mean, he probably had a pretty key, key role in shaping the Affordable Care Act, which is the official name for Obamacare. But Biden is looking for a public health option like a Medicare for all, and is also looking for a middle-class tax credit to promote coverage. Um, basically, like, hey, like if you are covered, like you get a tax break on that. He's also looking to take a, a leaf out of Teddy Roosevelt's book and do a little trust busting of the medical monopolies. Well, Teddy's famous for it. Taft actually did more trust busting, but yeah, it's it's that time in history. Okay. The only thing I remember about Taft is that he got stuck in a bathtub. <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> can, can we go out and say just how much of a communist Teddy Roosevelt would be called by Fox News today if he tried to break up Google? Can we just put that Gosh, one out there? Bold claim. It, it's just... But it's right. I, I, th th this country <laughs> hasn't been as conservative as people think it has been in the past, right? Like It, it has been very, very conservative, but there was a, a really, really 
strong labor movement in this country between like the tail end of the Civil War up through, I'd say probably the 1950s. So again, it's not saying that that would be the right move for Teddy to do it, but I just want to point out that he would have been definitely a socialist in my dad's eyes. Oof, poor Teddy. He was a boss. So he's also looking to repeal the law that exempts Medicare for negotiating with drug manufacturers. So basically allowing them to still negotiate prices, uh, which that would generally drive them down as long as they negotiate well. And then also is on board with and supports importation of prescription drugs from other countries as long as it's been deemed safe. And also end the tax deduction that pharma can get uh, for advertising spending. So basically like all those commercials for Viagra, like Viagra can no longer get a tax exemption for that. Yeah, I mean, there it's not uncommon in parts of the country to drive to Mexico or Canada for dental work. Also looks to restore federal funding for Planned Parenthood and end the global gag rule that stops the government from supporting health efforts that also mention abortion services. I think, I mean, we're both pretty tired at this point, so that definitely plays a part. But also, healthcare is one of those one of those subjects that I definitely don't feel as as prepared to discuss, uh, just because I'm 26 and relatively healthy, and haven't had to deal a lot with working with the healthcare system. I'm also in that boat. I mean, the U.S. system is also more complex than others, which is kind of one of the reasons why it can be so inefficient and expensive, because we have this insurance system, which leads to administrative costs, which leads to this question of who's in and out of network, which leads to surprise billing if you can inadvertently see someone who's out of network. So let's sum it up with the system is more complex than it should be compared to other countries. Makes sense to me. So before we close out, what do you think is the strongest point for each candidate? Like which one of these do you think like is their thing? For me, Biden's stance on climate change and some of his plans on incorporating like infrastructure updates in order to like also accomplish green initiatives, I think is definitely like a huge point for Biden on that side of things. Trump, on the other hand, he doesn't have much outlined for tax plans, but his lower tax tax plans are are pretty solid. He's proven. I think that's probably the, been the most successful part of his presidency. For me, I'm going to agree that climate change is definitely where Biden should hang his hat. And I also am going to say that I don't agree with a lot of Trump's law enforcement policies, but I think it's going to market well with his base. And I think that that's why the people who are voting for Trump, I think that that's probably one of the areas that seals the deal for them. So I think that's a, a strong aspect for Trump, even though I disagree with a couple of points. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we wrap up our conclusion of Trump versus Biden on the issues. Not to be confused with Trump versus Biden, the boxing match, which I have, I'm convinced is going to be Thursday's debate. Well, let's see. This will probably get published the week after debate number two. So we have no idea what happens in tomorrow's debate. I've got Trump with the knockout in round three. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be decided on points. I think the ref's gonna have to tell him, you know, no headbutting, no low shots. There's gonna be some 
some breaking up. A lot of active refereeing tomorrow. You can believe that. Oh, for sure. For sure. What's Biden's reach like? I feel like he's a lanky guy. I think that if I'm Biden, I want to make Trump really, really mad and get him super aggressive so he can catch him off balance. And if I'm Trump, I want to be aggressive, but not so aggressive I do something dumb. That, that statement works both for a fight and a debate, I think. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. After the debate, I think Joe Rogan's going to be commentating on the UFC fight between the two, and and we'll see how that goes. So, anyways, everybody, thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to do your own research, take what we say, question it, challenge it. If you have any feedback, send us a note on Instagram, missed underscore information 2020. We look at that regularly. It's the best way to get in touch with us. Give us ideas for new episodes. Let us know where you think we're wrong. Let us know where you think you're, we're right, and also let us know if you think that we should uh, get over ourselves and figure out a better way to do this, because we are open to criticism and feedback and for alternate opinions. So with that, be sure to talk to people that you disagree with, look up ideas you don't understand, and go vote. See you.